Well, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. And I wonder, I, I, I wonder, I mean, I know, but I wonder if you've ever been in a season where one bomb drops and then another bomb drops. One requirement comes and then another. One responsibility and then another. Deadlines at work, bills to pay, kids' homework and grades to worry about. Perhaps we have friends and family with expectations on our lives. We have the never-ending reality of choices, obligations, and demands on your life. Young and old, single and married, rich and poor, we all find ourselves spitting plates, juggling knives, keeping our heads above water, and whatever cliche you can think of. As one PhD English professor, author, and godly sister said once, we may never know the treacherous journey someone has taken to land in the pew next to you. So we all sit down this morning feeling some kind of weight in life. The faithful follower of Christ, as we read through Jesus' teaching, you should feel that same weight. If we truly apply Jesus' teaching and we follow them, then we'll have a sinking feeling, a daunting perception, and a self-awareness that says, I can't. I can't do it. The high kingdom kind of living and the call on our life in Matthew 5 through 7, it's humanly impossible. I've said this before, I'll say it again. God is not calling you to a moral life. He's calling you to something supernatural. So as we come, the, uh, come near the end of our series, Jesus, he sits on top of a mountain and he provides a word to you and I, and really to anyone who would listen today. He's not unaware of how difficult this world is. And he doesn't lack awareness to the teaching that he's been giving us in these past chapters. So our main idea this morning is simply this. Our life should be different. As faithful followers of Christ, our life should be different. So we press on into the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus, in our passage this morning, he continues his invitation to you and to me, to his listeners, to live a different kind of way, and he shows us how it's possible. So if you are a Christian and you fundamentally confuse these recent passages or just the scriptures as a whole, you'll come away feeling guilt, burden, and weight. The Sermon on the Mount, if you misread it in its context, will leave you with guilt, shame, and frustration. But that's not the intent of Jesus' words. Certainly, by the Spirit of God, we should experience conviction. Our Beatitudes, back in chapter 5, it does start with, Blessed, happy are those who are poor in spirit. We should ask God to show us our spiritual poverty. We should seek God's change and reform where we personally need it. And it's right that we would correct our faulty thinking and action. But more than conviction, more than conviction, Jesus aims to bring to us a different life that we couldn't bring to ourselves. So if you haven't already, uh, please grab a copy of the scriptures and 
Turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be in verses 7 through 14. So read with me Jesus' words, his teaching, his doctrine that he lays before his faithful followers. I believe we'll have it on the screen as well. Our Lord, starting in verse 7, says this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Well, this is God's word. Don't blow my nose. to do that in the first service too and all right I think it'd be wise for us to walk through this passage and we're going to frame this passage into three categories that Jesus lays before us in these verses so first we have in this different kind of life we've been called to a life beyond capability that's what you're called to as a Christian, a life beyond capability. And we see this directly from verses 7 through 11. We come again to words that can and have been consistently ripped from their context and the larger point of Jesus' teaching. Many well-meaning people have opened their Bibles to passages like this, verses 7 through 11, and they come to the conclusion that Jesus is inviting them to their best life now. There's another well-known pastor from a different Lakewood church in Texas, and we get calls and emails trying to contact this church, different church, different pastor, and unashamedly a false teacher whose name is Joe Olstein. And he promotes something called the prosperity gospel. He says this, quote, when you, when you do everything that you can do, that's when God will step in and do what you can't. He's gone on to teach, essentially. If you will do your best and seek and ask and knock, God will give you your best life now. He will heal your sickness. He will give you the marriage you dreamed of. God will provide the finances you need. Ask whatever you want. They rip this verse out and say, ask whatever you want. God will give it to you because he blesses those who try really hard and ask. Is that what Jesus is speaking of in these verses? 
can we take these commands, and they are commands, by the way, commands to ask, seek, and knock, and do we, do we just apply them generally and collect the promises of good gifts? Promises that tell us that we have a heavenly father who responds to our action, our obedience, and he blesses us. We can deduce from the entire canon of scripture that God commands and he invites us to pray to him. And God will hear and respond. That's true. We are told to bring the giant mountain of circumstances to him in prayer and even the minutia of the smallest little detail of your life. So we do understand that prayer is required and encouraged. But do we understand these verses generally as an invitation just to pray at large willy-nilly? I can't believe I just said willy-nilly. But, but, but is, that, is that the invitation? Whatever you want, just ask it. Are these verses given here to ask for anything and everything? And the answer is no. That's too simple, and potentially it's a little lazy on our part. So, however, look again, the beginning of verse 7 and the end of verse 11, they do start and end, they start and finish with this idea of asking. Prayer, clearly, is what's being communicated. And, and prayer, ultimately, is this act of dependence that says, God, I can't, I need you too. But this command and invitation to pray, to ask, seek, and knock, what is it in the context of? Or perhaps the more helpful, broader question, what does the Sermon on the Mount lead us to? And I think we've hit on this consistently through our, our series here. But the kingdom call in life that Jesus brings to us, the one that he calls us to live for, where we live for King Jesus and his policies, and not King Self, in our own ideas, it's a high call, especially of where we've been last week in light of chapter 7. The call to humbly assess, the call to judge others, to not condemn, but to seek change in our own heart first. You could argue that Jesus puts verse 7 in this passage where he does on purpose. Well, of course it's on purpose. This asking, seeking, and knocking he puts it at this point in the sermon because the call to humble assessments that we considered last week is what is probably, or probably is what, breaks the camel's back. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. See, all the commands that we've encountered through these chapters are hard. And maybe Jesus' listeners have bared through it all. But this last one, earlier in chapter 7, To consider my problems as more significant than other people's problems? To humbly look at the log in my own eye before I start pointing fingers at someone else? That's too much. I can't do that. Jesus comes anticipating our struggle and he says, you can't follow these Sermon on the Mount commands on your own. So ask, seek, knock, and God will help you. The message of this passage and the Sermon on the Mount in, in total, in totality, is you are incapable. You can't do it. 
You can't produce this life on your own, so lean on me. Come to me. I will change you. I will help you. I will give you the heart that you need to do it. And it's a little hidden in our English translations, but in verse 7, the commands to ask, seek, and knock, they're continual. It's not that you just did it once, but you have a life that does it. You could better translate verse 7 by saying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking in the Christian life. Keep praying that God would help you fulfill these hard commands on your life. And that makes sense, doesn't it? We are in continual need for God to shape in us the gospel and the fruit of the Beatitudes so that we would receive Jesus' kingdom call in our life and that we would actually do it. Imagine being a Christian who hears the word of God and actually does it. That's the call. And you may have read or heard these words, ask, seek, knock, explained in a way that emphasizes how each are different. Asking is a general prayer. Seeking implies that we don't know what we're looking for. Knocking suggests that we are seeking something that's inaccessible to us, perhaps. And that's all very clever. And it may be true. But I don't know if it helps us understand Jesus' point. We can get lost in the trees and miss the forest. Faithful followers of Christ are those who've been changed by the gospel, the good news of Jesus' person and work. If you are here today and you know, love, and follow Jesus, it's not because you tried hard. It's not because you asked the right way or because you sought more diligently than someone else or that you knocked on all the doors that were closed in front of you. If you're a faithful follower of Christ, it's not because of you. It's probably in spite of us, right? The Apostle Paul, I think he puts it pretty squarely in Romans 3. There are none who seek after God. When you believe that Jesus, the God-man, lived, died, and rose again, when you place all your trust and hope in his work on your behalf, as your substitute, as your Savior, the Bible says that you will be saved and changed. A supernatural work of God that will take place in your life. And as we considered in our sermon series in Galatians a couple years ago, Jesus is enough. The work that he begins in you as you believe in him is the work that he continues as you seek, ask, and knock as God enables you to live the kingdom life that you see in the Sermon on the Mount. But notice the emphasis of verses 7 through 11. Who is the central figure? Well, it's not you. (laughs) Is it not the Father? If you, for one moment, doubt that God will answer your desperate prayers as you ask him to help you live this kingdom life, Jesus says, be reminded of a heavenly father. The same heavenly father we were taught to pray to in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. It's the same Heavenly Father who gives good gifts, verse 11 says. Scholars point out that this is some kind of argument from from the lesser to the greater. 
So if your lesser, imperfect, flawed human fathers, if they know how to give good gifts, well, don't you think your heavenly father can? Typically, typically, most parents, even though evil, sin, imperfection, and life influence their hearts, typically, they do their best to provide for their kids, to help those kids when they're incapable in life. And kids, you're far more incapable than you realize. So much more. In a so much fuller way, our perfect Heavenly Father, who works all things for His glory and good, helps us when we're incapable. I, I, I love verse 11. These good things that He gives. What good things does He give? Is He like Oprah? You get a car and you get a car. What are the good things of verse 11? Here's how one pastor commented on these verses. Jesus knows the difference between wise and foolish requests. <laughs> Almost all of us are now thankful that the Lord declined some request we once made. Sometimes, therefore, we receive less than we ask. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord wants to give us his kingdom and his righteousness. Verse 7 is not a call to prayer to ask for anything and everything. He wants us to ask, seek, and knock that we would receive the good gift of kingdom living and pursue it. I often find myself praying through the grid of Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. God, give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is needful for me. God, don't give me the temporary comforts I ask. Give me what I need. Give me what I need. So I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. God, give me yourself. Give me holiness. Give me a changed heart. Give me the capacity to follow what you've laid before me. Oh God, give me good gifts. Faithful followers of Christ are called to a different life, a life beyond capability. Beyond capability. We need him. Well, I, I want us to see this different life. Yes, it's beyond capability, but in verse 12, it's also a life for others' sake. And this is going to be a hard one for us to chew. Because when you wake up, who's your life for? It's for you. I wake up this morning, first thing I'm thinking, how quick can I get a double espresso in my hand? First thing. I'm thinking about myself. So when Jesus, in this passage, when he calls us to a different life, he calls us to a life for the sake of others, I'm just going to tell you, you're going to struggle with this point. You're not going to like it. At least I didn't like it very much. So I'll read it again. Verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You likely have a note in your copy of the scriptures, or you've heard it by tradition, that this verse is the golden rule of Christian living. Just like WWJD, the what would Jesus do bracelets of a generation past, we come to a simple 
yet profound teaching that guides our interactions with others. And it can be understood by what we would want for ourselves. We're in a portion of Jesus' sermon where he's in the middle of talking about judgment. That's what he talked about last week, and it's what we'll consider in the weeks that follow. We're in a portion of the sermon how we're to humbly assess others by first looking at our own heart. How we're supposed to ask for help in following God's commands. And next week, we'll see in the following verses how we assess the fruit of our own lives and the fruit of others who act and speak in God's name. So this golden rule in verse 12, this idea of doing unto others what you would want done to you, it's in the context of judgment. So here's, here's a, a couple ways to ask questions to demonstrate the point. Wouldn't you want others to judge the log in their own eye before they first came to you about the speck in your life? Wouldn't you want that? Yes. Okay, verse 12. Great. Go ahead and do unto others what you would want for you. Well, wouldn't you want others to ask, seek, and knock for God's help in Christian living? Instead of trying to do it on their own and then coming and interacting with you? Don't you want them to be changed by God before they talk with you? Well, yeah. Great. Verse 12. Go ahead and do that to the others. And it's easy to ignore the plain reading of this verse. Just jump on social media. We ignore this verse all the time. And the skeptic might counter and say, well, okay, hold on. Why would I do what others want me to do? What if they want bad and terrible things that I disagree with? I just, I just do what they want? No. Look again at the command. We do unto others what we would want done to us. The assumption behind all of this is that if you are following Jesus' teaching, if you are truly a Christian, if you are truly following this kingdom life, you will want good things for yourself as you seek the kingdom of God. So I've heard it said, Jesus expects his disciples to want for themselves and for other people what he wants for us. But verse 12 is a dangerous Verse, and I dare you to live it out. It's no accident that Jesus points his hearers to the law and the prophets either. Jesus is the better lawgiver than Moses. He's the better king than David. So Jesus, royally, authoritatively, he summarizes the entirety of the Old Testament in this command. And he says here, live for others' sake. He says it this way later in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Doing unto others what you would want done to you. Now for a moment, think of the person. A little exercise for us. Think of the person you think poorly of right now. Maybe you have a few. Ask yourself how you are treating them. 
how you think about them, how you speak to them, how you act towards them. And I'll help. You know, I'm here to help. I'll offer a few considerations as you wrestle with whether you and I are following the golden rule of verse 12. So, how do you treat the spouse that you've been in conflict with? The child that refuses to admit they don't have all the answers. The family member that has hurt you. Kids, the group at school that's treated you as an outsider. How do you treat that coworker who throws you under the bus? That boss or politician that you fiercely disagree with? The Packers fan who annoyingly has two straight Hall of Fame quarterbacks. And I tell you what, if Jordan Love becomes a Hall of Fame quarterback, I'm going to devote my ministry. I'm just <laughs> but how do we treat the people that we don't like? Do unto others as you would have done to you. And I have to admit, that I don't follow that verse very well. So here's the question we have to wrestle with this morning. Are we faithful followers of Christ or not? It really is that simple. It's laid out very clearly that our lives are to be leveraged in part for the sake of other people. We are to treat people as we would want to be treated. And certainly that doesn't uh, mean that we allow or put up with or condone evil. But it does mean that we lovingly engage people as faithfully as we can, understanding our call to love even our perceived enemies. God help us. A life for others drives me back to verse 7, where I'm asking, seeking, knocking. God help us to live this verse, this golden rule. Well, lastly, in a different kind of life, we're called to a life that's uniquely Christian. What a funny thing to say on a Sunday morning. I mean, we are in a church, in a morning, morning gathering of a bunch of people who either call themselves Christians or are considering Christianity. And this feels like a no-brainer. But Jesus forces us in verse 13 and 14, and even in the following verses in the next couple weeks, to consider two paths of life. That may seem very black and white or very narrow, no pun intended. It may seem very simple, but ultimately all of life is one road or the other, Jesus says. As it is with so much of life, the harder road, the more difficult road, the one that seems most daunting and difficult, that's the road that usually yields the best result for you and others. So whether it's work, relationships, sports, or Highway 210, the hardest road is usually the best one. And so it is with the kingdom way of life that Jesus has presented to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Being a Christian is simple, but it's not easy. 
And if someone tells you it's easy, they're probably selling you something. So we look at these verses and we see two roads, two paths, a wide and easy gate to enter. And it's not just easy to enter, but it's an easy road to walk on. And its ultimate destination is destruction. And there are many who choose this wide, easy, comfortable, yet destructive road. And then we see another road in verse 14. A narrow gate, a narrow way that leads to a hard road. A path where comfort is lost, but it leads to life. And there's few who find and walk this path, Jesus says. And I think we have to remind ourselves who Jesus is talking to in the, in the context of this passage. So turn a page or two and look at the, the, the end of chapter 4. Matthew 4, 25 and Matthew 5, 1. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Verse 1, chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus has just laid some very difficult kingdom realities on his hearers. And he speaks before a large crowd, large crowd putting his teaching to the point of a decision. The teachings of Jesus are not some cute theological treatise on how we should merely think. No. The teachings of Jesus are not given so we could simply give mental assent to some good ideas and principles we say we believe in. No. Jesus is putting his hearers to a decision. Hear my words and respond. I don't care what you say you believe. I don't care what you say you think. Jesus says there's two roads. You must go one way or you must go another way. And I don't think Jesus had any of that Minnesota nice in him. No passive-aggressive dialogue at all in our passage. He certainly was kind, but he was honest, firm, and he spoke plainly. He has this giant crowd before him, and he doesn't try to win the crowd with deception and smooth words, just glossing over how difficult the Christian life is. He put it out there. He says, the life I'm calling you to is hard. And if you find the Christian life easy, you're probably not following all of his teachings very closely. So staying within the framework of Jesus' sermon, what are these two roads? The rest of the chapter follows this pattern, as I've alluded to. There's two roads, two trees, two ways to call on Jesus, and two builders. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll keep coming back to these verses here. But what are the two options of verses 13 and 14? We're left looking at a path of following Jesus' words and his teachings or the path of following anything else. The wide and easy path, it has many manifestations to it, but it's all the same, isn't it? Jesus stands as a fork in the road. 
you must encounter him, and you must go one of two ways. With him or against him. Language like that in our culture, it feels so archaic and restricting. Perhaps it seems a little unfair to call the road of not following Jesus just one singular road. Because on that wide road, there are people who follow other religions, and they're well-meaning, even if they say they follow no religion, albeit it's the religion of self. But that wide road may have many people on it who even call themselves Christians. But they don't follow what Jesus had to say. They haven't had a changed life and heart. The reason so many of us choose the easy road, the wide road, is because if we give ourselves to Christ, if we trust in him and his gospel, if he changes us from the inside out, if he enlarges our hearts to follow his ways, if we do all that, then it puts us on the hard road. And I don't want a hard road. I want an easy road. I want a road that's not just comfortable. I want a road where I get to call the shots. I want a road I can control. So then the question has to be asked, why follow the hard road? If you're here and you're considering Christianity, or you're here and you've been a faithful follower of Christ, but you find yourself pulled and bent and allured, to a wide, easy road that's separate from Christ. Here's a timely encouragement I came across this week. There is great joy in facing a good challenge. You know you are destined to do more than drift along in this Christian life. The hard path is better because it is the true path. The hard road leads to life. Both the easy road and the hard lead somewhere. And I've been reminded recently that one day life ends. One day history will end. The hard road restricts, but it opens up. To eternal life. The easy road leads to destruction. The easy road makes no demands on you, but it offers no real reward. And the reward you think you have is only temporary and you can lose it in a moment. The hard road makes great demands, but it offers great rewards. And we'll look more at these two roads next week. But it's clear that our response to the person and work of Christ is what is required in this passage. Will we trust him? Will we be changed by him? Will we follow his clear call on our life? That's the question. That's the difficult life that we've been called to. The different life. Say it every week. Tomorrow's Monday. And we leave the comforts of this room, the safety of it, the religiosity of it, where, oh, I'm fine, you're fine, God bless you, and all these Christian things we say. And we go out into a real world tomorrow, and we have to wrestle with an easy road or a hard road, 
A life that leads to destruction or a life that leads to life. A hard road that requires us, commands us to treat other people as we would want to be treated, even if they don't deserve it. A hard road that says you are not independent, strong, and self-made, but you are dependent. And you've been put here in the life that you've been given to honor and glorify God. Brothers and sisters, our life should be different. It should be. So would you pray with me as we ask, as we seek, as we knock, and we depend on the Lord to live this difficult but all-satisfying life. And if you don't think it's satisfying, just hang around a second. Because all the temporary things of this world have not satisfied your heart, have they? The things of this world, as we've said in the Sermon on the Mount, the things of this world are designed to fail you. You do not have one relationship. You do not have a dollar amount in the bank. The experience you hope to make, the legacy you hope to leave, you have nothing that will ultimately satisfy the desires of your heart because you've been made for another world. You've been designed to seek satisfaction in a hard road that brings life and joy and peace. So pray with me. Father, that is a big prayer request. And uh, Lord, we confess that it's hard to not doubt as to whether or not you would meet our request. We come here this morning and all of us have some measure of doubt as to whether you truly are, in verse 11, that good Father who gives good gifts. God, sometimes you seem far off. We wonder whether you are real and powerful and strong and kind. So would you be gracious to show yourself? Would you meet us in the life that we have? And God, would you help us to live a different kind of life? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.